Thank you for coming tonight. And we sincerely mean that. Telling uh, Brother David, it must be going to be a phenomenal service of the Lord's moving as much battle and as many questions as there were about, are we really having a service? We are, so thank you for coming. But uh, this came to mind, <clears throat> and I looked it up. I, I don't know the context necessarily other than Jonathan was pursuing the Philistines, I believe. And he said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's it. The Lord can do wondrous works among us, and he's not limited. In fact, he actually thrives, I think, when, when everything are, is against him, as we well know. Lord, help us tonight. We ask you to touch those that are not up with us, Lord. Minister strength. We lift up Brother Tony, and we lift up Brother Joe, Brother Bobby and Kathy, Sister Kathy. We look to you, Lord, for this night that you would touch hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was in Juarez, Mexico, and... <clears throat> Leslie Cedeno was, we were doing the side-by-side -side translating, and I said to her at one point, I said, there's two translations that are happening here. I'm trying to translate spirit to words, and you're translating English to Spanish. And she, we really don't need any more education in what is seen. Uh, there's no salvation in the earth. There's no salvation from the earth. Not, but Jesus said, by taking thought, can you add a cubit to your stature? You know, I often wonder why I didn't say just a micron. <laughs> I think he was trying to make it all the more ridiculous. Can you add a 16 inches to your stature by thinking? We're humbling of ourselves to get there in order to be saved. The affront that our status becomes to us and dwelling there rather than resisting it or trying to somehow cover it over or divert our attention to something else that isn't that. <clears throat> I would assume that uh, a vision that Beverly Leake had, I think about four years ago, in Haynes while we were on that uh, Northern Tour, she said she saw a group of people walking up a dry riverbed. Is this familiar to everybody? Has everybody heard this? Have you shared this? No? Wow. Anyhow, 
There was a company of people walking up a dry riverbed headed toward what had been the source of no water now. And when they got to a place where they decided to take a break and have a drink of water and a little fellowship, there was some of the company who would gather rocks from the riverbed and, and make a, an altar. And when it came time to continue the journey, those that had made the altar stayed by the altar. And this was a reoccurring thing in the vision she saw. So obviously the company shrunk some and every stop. And yet there was something in the midst of the company that was moving some forward. And I thought, you know, what, what was the... What was the mindset of the people concerning those that had stayed? You know, those that were going on. You know, it was, a, was it even a consideration? You know, was there any judgment that was passed? Was there an opinion that was accumulated? And, or was it just like, okay, come on, those of us that are going forward, let's go forward. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and... Um, <clears throat> What about the mindset of some saying, you know, you know, the fourth or fifth iteration, the fourth or fifth altar that had been left in the rearview mirror saying, you know, maybe, maybe this time when we take a rest, I'm going to be one that, you know, because this is getting sketchy. <laughs> this is really getting thin. You know, I thought we were right there around this corner. There was, there was going to be at least a spring or some residual effect of what created this river. And the verticality of it, the wobbling of the ankles on the stones, you know. Maybe, maybe it's better just to build an altar the next time we rest. I might throw a few stones up there and you know, get, we have definition in a place that we have focus and a sense of accomplishment and attainment. But there were those that just continued. And you wonder, well, what makes the difference in that? I mean, there was nothing in the vision that was, <clears throat> these people missed it, or it wasn't true worship, or demons flooded in when they, you know, it was just. It's what resonated with them, and they, they came to the place that made sense to them to have some outward indication of the worship that was still not defined in the people that were going forward. They hadn't found a place that identified them, that they said, this is it, and this is where we're going to. It, it kind of reminds me of Hebrews 11. You know, that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the land of promise, and they probably sat around and Abraham told them when they were kids, you know, I remember the day that we left Ur. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. And you know, twice while we were going, I just felt by the Spirit that the Lord said, hit your camp where you were last week. I mean, it, it was like so contradictory to going to a destination. Twice he led us back to where we, 
It made no sense. It says that they dwelt in tents. That although they were fully convinced they were at their destination, there was still a testimony in their heart that we're still looking. And what we're looking for isn't a destination in a physical geographical sense, but it's something that we haven't yet identified, we haven't yet defined. We, this is bringing, you know, this whole book wasn't even a scroll until Moses had a bunch of time on his hands because the people were walking in circles. <coughs> and there's a strong case to be made that Enoch, Enoch, sorry, um, finished the course. I don't, I don't know what, what, by what authority somebody sidesteps death. But I know it's not a common ingredient. You know, we have a homily in the English language says, well, there's only two certain things, death and taxes. Enoch said, no, mm, taxes maybe, but <laughs> you don't have to die. There's a way through, there's, there's a path that isn't evident, that isn't documented, that isn't of the earth, that can't be seen. And it isn't resourced by man's capacity. And you know, we, we, we encounter this, we, we have a strong testimony of this in the very beginnings of our experience with the Lord. And I'm not saying it's the beginning of God's experience with us, but it just our, you know, there's definitions that are given us that whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. <clears throat> so just for a little, because you guys still don't have a whiteboard up here, you know, it's, Hampering for those of us that would teach otherwise. So whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. So there's five, five things. And the middle one is the calling. I, I didn't know until I was called. I couldn't hear until I was called. And he was two steps ahead. You know, I came in on his third input. Hey, John. John, he calls me, he said my name twice. First one is to kind of get your attention. The second one is to bring definition. But he had already foreknown and he had already predestinated before he called. I didn't know he was working for my benefit before I knew. 
And so Enoch did not die. Because it said that he pleased God. <clears throat> if we were to postulate and say, well, we need, we need to keep the Lord's commandments. And sometimes when we identify a word and we go back to the hard drive, we say, okay, well, what is he... What did he command? Well, he commanded us to love one another. Right? But that's not, I'm not saying what was his commandments to us. I'm saying what commandment did he march to? And the only one I've been able to find was he said, this commandment have I received of my father. There's no commandment that I can find. I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, we can pull some evidence to say, well, there must have been other than just that. But what he said, my commandment that I received from my father is to lay my life down. The law of the spirit of life in Christ is that he lived by offering. And, and our first, my first, and I think it would be true for all of us, my first encounter and awareness of the calling of God was that there was a provision that was made for me because of my lack of sufficiency, whatever you want to call that. Call it sin that needed to be forgiven. Call it carnality. Call it double-mindedness, call it unbelief, call it, call it what you will, but there had to be a provision that was made on my behalf to get me out of the state. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Jesus testified to this with Nicodemus. He said, Nick, if, if, if you don't get born again, concerning the kingdom of God, you're blind. And as far as entering in and becoming subject to the benefit of laws that supersede nature, you're going to stay separate from that. You'll never find working in you the authority of more than what is natural. So you can become a scholar and you can quote the Bible backwards. You can study Greek and Hebrew maybe even learn to speak Aramaic and feel better about quoting what Jesus said on the cross because he said it in Aramaic. I don't, you know, whatever. But you're not going to be resourced by something that's going to add anything to you. You're going to come in a leopard. You're going to die a big leopard. And your spots won't move while you're a leopard. There's no, no leverage. And so Christ, to me, is change. It's the opportunity to be changed, to become something that isn't natural. And obviously, it has to be acted upon something that supersedes the limitation of natural law. And the testimony of the miracles wasn't to show that it's possible to 
overcome some physical laws of displacement and surface tension. And it was consistent testimony that if you live as a son, there is a power available by which you don't have to be locked down by natural. Because I'm pretty sure everybody that he raised from the dead died, and the sick died, and those that ate the loaves and fishes got hungry again. And I mean, there was nothing enduring that came out of the miracles. It was a testimony to the capacity that if you walked under the hand of God and you were living in a kingdom that the authority transcended the limitations of nature, you could be changed. Because the administration of what he did until he said, it is finished, and he surrendered his spirit to the Father and gave up his soul, was temporal. The only eternal thing that he did was he died. The impact of his priesthood did not change the world. It created an opportunity for mankind to enter into the kingdom of God. And you know, honestly, if we take a, a dispassionate, non-religious mindset to this thing, we'll recognize that what he did 2,000 years ago wasn't locked in time. Because Enoch walked in the spirit as a son. Elijah walked as a son. How would that be possible? I mean, your fundamental theology says the spirit hadn't even been given. How did the musings of David think about Abraham and say, whew. I mean, you can read the history that David had available. We don't know the verbal continuity necessarily, but we have the history that David could read about Abraham's life. And somehow it occurred to him one day that this is a blessed state that Abraham had. To have righteousness that was just delivered parcel post to his front door and it had nothing to do with his ability to not sin or be good or know. Or... Because it says without works. And he was joined to the foreknowledge. I, I don't get, I don't know why you're here. Because I don't know why I'm here. My brother's not here. And I went to Great Ledges and I received the evidence of the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues and I went home and I thought, boy, mom and dad are going to, this is great. 
I don't know. <laughs> I had good parents. They went to church all the time. And my mother had a walk in the spirit with the Lord to the point where dad said, look, if it's spiritual, go to your mother. If it's, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that book is the man is the head of the house spiritually. He, if it was around, he didn't read it. If he read it, he didn't like it. <laughs> but he was a good man. And they didn't, they weren't moved in, a, in any sense to move upstream from the altar that they worshiped at. And they were concerned that I left the environment of the altar that they worshiped at. I somehow had people concerned about me that I knew and they knew me, but they hadn't had any concern until I got to baptism. And they'd come to me and talk about the train wrecks and the deviant expressions of religious and the deceptions and the deceivers and the false prophets and never said anything good about what being born again meant. <laughs> you know, it was like, don't go down that road. I guess a verse would probably help this or anchor it or <clears throat> It's kind of a stray, extraneous thing. <clears throat> Tenth verse of uh, Matthew 13. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said, because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whom, whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more in abundance. But whomsoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Now why are you speaking to them in parables? And then he spoke to them in a parable, so. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing you shall hear, and you shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed heavy, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. See, that's that deflection thing. So in hearing and not understanding, that's kind of like an environmental thing, but in seeing and closing your eyes. That's different. <clears throat> Lest that any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And this is the context of the thing, I think. 
For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired, there's another rendition of this and in one of the other gospels said kings, not just uh, righteous men, but, and I think there's a correlation to that, have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So there's a translation that is incumbent upon us in order to respond to the call. And this response isn't just hearing. You know, Jesus said to the disciples, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? And, and there's evidence that at times they spoke amongst themselves. And not just at that time, but other times. And, I, you know, to think that there wasn't a discussion sponsored by this statement, like, hey, tell me, did I, have you, have you ever heard him tell me to do something that I didn't do? Who, who is it? Somebody didn't do it. I mean, he's obviously a little irked. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and say, okay, well, let's camp here for the night. So-and-so, go gather firewood. Nah, I don't want to do that today. <laughs> go get your own firewood. And we always did what he said. But he was, he was translating spirit. And the words that translate spirit in many cases come with something that can't be related to and defined by the application of those words to nature. The words are there to be like a pry bar to bring us and pop us loose from the rut. You know, this statement that the first time I heard it, I actually laughed out loud. I said, how's it going here? And I said, well, we have people that are very uncomfortable when they can't touch the sidewalls of the rut they're walking in. God's trying to destabilize things. I don't know if you feel that influence or not. You know, Paul followed, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And you go, oh, this is getting really strong spiritually. And if we're not careful, we would finish the next phrase saying, be conformed to the image. And it doesn't say that. It says being made conformable. Something has a tight structure and you want to make it conformable. Sometimes it takes dynamite. Destabilizing. Taking the props out, taking the Working on, you know, and if you're going to do it peaceably, you can't just have a full frontal attack. You've got to find a corner of the linoleum that's loose and kind of work it to get it off. You can't just pull tight linoleum right from the middle up unless you've got a big excavator and that destroys other things. This is a surgery because God is seeking to redeem us. This isn't making us just some 
a, you know, conduit that's impervious to what it channels. And it wouldn't matter if it had water in it, if it had virgin olive oil, if it had sewage in it. It's not going to change the pipe itself. The pipe is just a This is not that. This is not us bringing a message. This is us being changed to be a testimony. And if we got a death grip on where we are, or if we have this, you know, I, I think there's probably one of the people, because I, I think I'm in that category, one of the people that kept walking and didn't build an altar and stay. Was being confronted with your own interest Get off of this train. You know, hope is what you don't have. And if you're hungry and you don't have a sandwich, you're going to stay hungry. But if you're a Christian and you don't have hope, your progress is arrested. We're, we're nutrition by what we don't have. They that hunger and thirst for righteousness should be filled. And we would think, well, then they're not hungry and thirsty. No, they're filled with hunger and thirst. You know, this, this passion for the things that aren't seen and to be dominated by that which comes from outside you or from within you that isn't you, however you want to say it. I think the aggressiveness of this pursuit begins to be a consuming thing. Somebody could actually say obsessive, not in the sense of coming up with an aberrant personality, but just... And what was the context with which Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, you know, just so you're aware, I'm not, I'm not going to be talking with you as much as I have been. Because there's something ahead of me that is going to take all of the focus that I have to accomplish. And how am I straightened until it be completed? And that straightening kind of absorbs the focus of what was being distributed. The love, one of the three enduring ingredients of 1 Corinthians 13 that was said to be the greatest of the three, begins to, in a sense, not make you mean and ornery and unsocial, but it begins to withdraw the sense of expansion for distribution. Because no greater love is there on a horizontal plane than that you die for your brother. I love you.
I love you too. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I don't. I, I really don't want to mock that. I have my challenges in those issues, but I know. Now you give me an amen, right? <laughs> but there is that that just there comes a point. I mean. Think of the most distressing thing that you have had on your mind in the last 24 hours. It could be a grandchild that's sick. It could be, you know, whatever. And then multiply it by about a million times of people that are in the same place that you don't know that they're there. And then take it up a notch from there to things that are worse than the thing that's bothering you. And your assignment is to resolve all of those things. And I, and I look at myself and I said, I can't solve my own problems. I, I can't save myself. I'm so ridiculously selfish. How do I save me from myself? I mean, if I think I'm gaining on it, isn't itself getting stronger? <laughs> It's not so funny from this side, though. Really, because, you know, I mean, this is Elijah sitting under the juniper tree saying, God, I'm no better than my fathers. And he wasn't pointing at them and despising them. He was just saying, I'm just as limited naturally as they were. The things that I see here that need to be addressed, I can't address. This is Paul at the end of Romans 7 saying, what I know I should do, I find no a capacity to accomplish. And it seems that no matter what I do, he's not helping. Because we have to be saved by hope. And hope is an application of faith. To be saved by what you don't have to be nourished by what you can't apply. Because we're being made conformable. And there's a sense in which a lack of conformability is what resists the potter's capacity to conform, to bring forth the image of his intention from the beginning with the clay if the clay is inconformable. So the work of the Holy Spirit sometimes is to destabilize. And there's a scripture in the epistle of John, and it says, though my heart fail, Something everybody has to answer for themselves. But what is my heart failing? Kind of losing tension with hope would be a failing of the heart. Seeing my carnality and being dismayed would be a failing of my heart.
And there comes a place where we must gain uh, an overcoming of the testimony of our failure. And whatever comes under that category of failure. We could make a laundry list if we had the whiteboard here. But though my heart failed, yet he's moving from calling to justification. Will we join him in being justified? Or are we going to continue to condemn ourselves based on evidence? Because that's a natural process, you know. You go to court and there's testimony and say, well, where were you on the 10th of January? What were you doing? Of course, in his court, it's what were you thinking? So Christ is change, and a fundamental part of what God is seeking to accomplish in those that are going to continue up this dry riverbed is to be justified. Say what? Yeah. You know, if you, if you run all the way to the end of the matter, to the, to the furthest scope of our conjecture, and we'd say it's a manifestation of the sons of God in a glorified body, not being unclothed, but clothed upon in a twinkling of an eye. Okay, there it is. So who's going to deserve that? If history testifies, nobody. At some point, that has to be overturned. When is your history not your history? When you're living is the evidence of a new creation. All things passed away. All things become new. So abiding, dwelling, being framed by what isn't you is in a very critical part of justification. And without justification, guess what? No fifth step. No fifth step. And if there aren't some that take this fifth step, you read the last few verses of Hebrews 11, that in spite of what was accomplished, they subdued kingdoms, (laughs) closed the mouth of lions, did not receive an immediate relief because they believed in a better resurrection, He said, I'd rather die here in hope of a better resurrection than take your offer of clemency. But they did not inherit the promise. So that they, without us, cannot be made manifest. I was ministering from a different approach 
And somebody at the end of it said, I got a question. Why have you leaned so hard and brought so much substance to the concept of manifestation? And I said, because until there is one, everything else is opinion. Until there's something that is a definition by manifestation. Because obviously the gospel of this is the truth doesn't shake the world. And I, and I think I would take a liberty and I, I don't want to change the sense of what Jesus said. It's just, it'd be silly to want to do that. But, you know, when he said the same that I have done shall you do in greater. And, I, and in a long time I thought we're going to do greater things than he did. Because he said, and I don't know how that makes sense or what he had in mind, but he said it. And I, and I think there's, a, a, and, you know, it's a, even if that's true, I think it's equally true that if we do what he did, the impact of that testimony in the earth is going to have a greater effect. Because the testimony will be a complete testimony to the capacity of God. And see, Jesus couldn't be that. Because he wasn't born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It wasn't the redemption of Adam. It was the declaration of the capacity of a life that would live under the Father. He was born Christ. And redemption has to reach to the bottom in order that everything as it's raised is glorified by it coming through that. I mean, if you just reach halfway down in the bucket, at least if it's clam chowder, you don't get the good stuff. So the testimony has to be that the lowest is redeemed. And that's Adam. As a testimony that all are now subject to that same liberty. <laughs>